Welcome to Pause and Listen, the podcast from Pause. I'm Claire Laxton, Director of Communications and Influencing at Pause, and will be your host for this episode. For any new listeners out there, Pause is a national charity working with women who've experienced or at risk of having children removed from their care. We offer an intensive trauma-informed model of support to women, so the removal of a child should never have to happen more than once. In this episode of Pause and Listen, we're going to be looking at the issue of psychiatric and psychological expert witness assessments that happen during care proceedings. We began a project on this issue because mental health is universally a key issue for women on the Pause programme. And after speaking to women, Pause practitioners and other professionals, it became really clear that the lack of referrals to mental health services that are recommended in expert witness assessments was a huge barrier to women getting the support they need. In early July, we published a report on this very issue. The report, Set Up to Fail, outlines how the current system of expert witness assessments set women up to fail with recommendations for treatment that are unrealistic and unavailable. In our survey of women, we found that 75% had negative or somewhat negative experience of assessments, while 82% were not referred to services or support after the assessment. We want that disconnect to end and more clarity around the expert witness process and reports. In this podcast episode, we'll hear from Dr Sheena Webb, a clinical psychologist, from a woman, Susie, not her real name, who appeared on the Nagamonchetti Five Live radio show to talk about her experiences, and Kelly Andrews from the Foundation Service in East Sussex about their experiences and expertise. Hi, Sheena. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your experience and why you're interested in this topic? I'm a clinical psychologist. I've spent the past 10 years mainly working within the family court in a couple of different types of services. I initially worked in a whole family assessment service. It did provide expert witness assessments to the court, but in a slightly different model from, say, a lone expert witness model. And then I moved from there to work in the London Family Drug and Alcohol Court, also known as FDAC, where you offer intervention and assessment throughout the proceedings to try and offer a more dynamic picture of progress. Having spent quite a long time doing it, I've become very mindful of the experience of many of the parents that I've worked with, because many of the people that we have seen in these services have been assessed multiple times before yeah, and have been through the court process many, many times. When you're having to take really horrible decisions about whether or not you're recommending children are removed Mm -hmm. from the care of their parents, it becomes even more painful when you feel that this person has not been given the opportunities in the past that they could have been given to be helped. Is that the main challenge for parents that have been through the process many times and had many assessments that they are not getting the chance to make that change or do you think there are other challenges in the system for parents? I think there are many many challenges for any parent going through care proceedings it's something that no parent ever wants or anticipates. What I've seen a lot of within the family court is individuals who have not had many advantages in their lives growing up, who've not been given many emotional and cognitive resources with which to cope with 
day-to-day situations, let alone a situation like being assessed in court. And so I think the whole experience of being assessed is even more onerous and even more traumatic for those individuals. And when I've asked them, so can you tell me about your previous assessment or can you tell me what the conclusions were? They can't tell me. It's all a blur. The whole process is quite traumatizing in the way that it's done there's a real disconnection you know you go and see an expert you see them for a few hours maybe then a report gets sent to your solicitor then you may or may not be sent the report you may or may not be able to read it or understand the language in these reports the terminology that's used is really not Mm -hmm. aimed at helping parents to understand themselves better it's aimed at assisting court and I think all of those factors serve to make this an incredibly confusing and overwhelming experience. I've known parents get emailed by solicitors the last paragraph of the report only. And sometimes as an expert, you have to be yeah. clear at yeah. the end of the report. You may have written lots of other things. You may have talked about a parent's strengths. You may have talked compassionately about their past. That may not have actually made it to the parent. I think the other thing is that the independent expert system, it's not a regulated, organized system. A lot of the time, the way the system is, it it keeps the expert away. And so the expert sends a report off by a deadline, but often there isn't an opportunity to give the feedback to the parent directly. One of the things that I felt very strongly about, and I was really glad that we did both in my previous service in FAS and in FDAC was wherever humanly possible we always gave the feedback face to face with the parent it's that relationship that makes that difference to people understanding what's going on in that assessment process that actually someone's taken the time to to try and explain what they've done and what they've said and why they've said that I think there are some systemic barriers to that happening in terms of the confidentiality and the separation Mm. of the expert from the rest of the parties and the parent, there may be an issue of time. Exactly. When it feels like there is a disconnect between what happens in those assessments, which is for the court's purpose, but also what happens afterwards. If women are told, you need three years of this treatment, off you go, then very often women will go and try and get that, you know, three years of that treatment. Mm-hmm. And very often it won't be available or there'll be a two-year waiting list or something like that. And one of the things we're recommending in our report is that the expert witness in the recommendations need to have some element of awareness of availability of services. Hopefully it would make people feel like less like they're set up to fail. It is upon the expert to set out what treatments are optimal, but also to talk about what's realistic and viable within a timescale, but also within that locality that that person is in. I mean, the difficulty can often be that the expert might be from one area and the parent might be living in another area. The other issue is there's a bit of a postcode lottery still around what services are available where, but at least to give some guidance about alternatives as well. Something else that we've talked about, many of the women that we work with have had repeated assessments because they have had more than one child taken into care and so sometimes women come to pause and they have seven or eight different diagnoses and don't know what any of them mean and they're like I've got this this and this but I have no access to any of the treatment that is recommended for it It just feels like we're really leaving them in a vulnerable confusing place also being told you are these eight different mental health diagnoses (laughs) 
the need to be really clear about explaining diagnoses, explaining recommendations. And I think parents need more guidance about how to access. How do I get a referral? Where do I go to? Do I go to the GP? Do I go here? One of the things that we spend quite a lot of time in FDAT doing is, and I imagine you do the same in pause, is hand-holding people through the process of getting the right service. It's not easy. That is the heartbreaking element of it, isn't it? That disconnect just hugely harms women and children and doesn't give them the opportunity to seek help and support. Yeah. Um, we also talked in our report about things that are needed in the longer term, which are more around really understanding what these expert witness assessments are saying, what treatment they're recommending. So then it feels like we're maybe coming at it with a more informed approach. Do you think that sort of work would be helpful as well? Hugely. I really think further research in quantifying, starting to identify the scale of the need, what services might be needed, because it's not necessarily mental health services fault that they're not commissioned to provide these services. But how do we get that need visible and known. Most interventions and things that you do generally, you need some kind of evidence base to be working from. And what's interesting about experts' witness assessments, given the types of decisions that are being made on their basis, is I'm not aware of the evidence base. In FDAC, we have to justify our existence. And I think a lot of services that are commissioned by statutory bodies have to do that. So I think that's important. I think the other thing is that there are models of good practice out there. Mm. SWIFT in Sussex is a lovely integrated model, the the FAST service in Oxfordshire and Wiltshire, where the expert assessment has a follow-on service so that you don't just do the assessment, but then there's somewhere for people to go afterwards, either to support the reunification process or to support parents who haven't been able to stay together with their children and as you say there are lots of areas of good practice we're not trying to move massive mountains here there are things that can be done to make this experience better and work better for the system as well so hopefully we can create a bit of change together absolutely if I think about some of those services they survive because locally the local authorities um and the NHS services believe in them and continue to invest and support them. I think they're hugely valued services by both the parents and by the the stakeholders involved. I would love to see more of that, definitely. Is there anything else that you would like to tell listeners of the podcast about expert witness assessments and, and parents' experience of them? There's a few things that come to mind. One is because so many parents come into proceedings already having experienced trauma already with an emotional system that is very sensitized can we have a trauma-informed approach to the way that these assessments are conducted how parents are spoken to about them how the appointments are arranged as a system can we make it more consistent for parents and to follow those trauma-informed principles around transparency and choice and, and, and things like that I suppose the other thing that strikes me as a pause for reflection is that if you go back to the beginning of the process, when and how people decide whether or not an expert report is needed, that conversation happens amongst the legal professionals within the pre-court discussions initially. And I just find that curious that 
what you have is that legal professionals decide a report is needed on the basis of some information they've already received. They write the letter of instruction. They choose the expert. What expert you choose really makes a difference because different experts have different expertise, psychiatry, psychology, adult practitioners, child practitioners, family practitioners. It makes a big difference. Very often what I see is that the expert that's chosen is the one that can report the quickest. And the letter of instruction, how do you decide what questions will be asked? Because sometimes, even as an expert, when I've received the letter of instruction, I'm thinking, why are you asking me this? This is not the letter of instruction that I would have written. Yeah. I think if I had my wish list, yes. <laughs> on my wish list would be that the court and the legal professionals had some access to mental health consultation at that early mm. stage of planning an expert yeah. assessment and deciding who to instruct and what to instruct them to do. The other thing that I wanted to say is that you read some reports that are really well written, really carefully considered, okay. excellent reports. But I'm afraid that as many reports as there are that are brilliant, there are reports that I feel fall very, very far short of that standard. And I feel very strongly that something this important should not be that inconsistent. There are standards out there, but there's no regulation. Yeah. Actually, anybody can qualify and go into independent export. There's no minimum amount of years you have to practice yeah. or minimum thing that you have to do. There's recommendations to do bond sole on training, but you don't have to if you don't want to. And I think that for me adds a layer of concern. And it's really important for the courts to be looking and expecting a certain level of quality from the experts and also not discounting who might already know the client and be able to provide yeah. some information as well. Absolutely. There are so many systemic things that need to change longer term, but also there are some things that can change in the shorter term in the sense of looking at the good practice out there, changing some of those systems, creating more of a connection between the recommendations and reports and the services that are available. So hopefully there is a bit of change coming in the system. Absolutely. There is hope. <laughs> yeah. So now we're going to hear from Susie, again, that's not her real name, who talked to Naga Monchetti on BBC Radio 5 Live early this year about her experiences. Susie's 30 years old. She's a mum of three children. All three children are in care. So what we did with Susie is we went back to the beginning. We spoke about what life was like for her when she was younger. And her own mother had serious alcohol problems. And as a result, Susie spent much of her teenage life in care. I got taken into foster care when I was 13, where over the next three years I had 26 placements because I was chaotic. Then I ended up committing crime. I went to a juvenile prison twice after being released from prison. I very quickly found myself pregnant. kind of planned it that way because I assumed that a baby would save my life because I didn't know what else I could do. Because of my past, social services immediately got involved. So they tried to remove her when she was born. They went to court and they applied for removal from the hospital. And the judge said, you haven't even given her an opportunity yet to fail. <laughs> Lots of people have traumatic upbringings and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to repeat that. He sided with your daughter returning home. Yeah, and he put her on a supervision order. I'd have to have assessments done psychological and all sorts. 
Did you welcome that at the time? No, no, not at all. Because I saw it as they'd already tried to remove her. So all they're going to be doing is trying to prove their initial reasoning. What happened with your daughter? I actually had custody of her for a long time. I met my two little ones, Fava, when she was about four. So it'd just been me and her for them four years. And then I let someone else in, got pregnant quite quickly. As soon as she was born, he turned quite abusive and he didn't like my daughter anymore. So it's very apparent that now he had his own child, that she was irrelevant. Social services come straight back in because he had hurt me and I'd called the police and needed to be treated at the hospital. They said to me that you need to make him leave. So I made him leave. However, when I got lonely and I dipped and I wasn't coping, I'd let him back in again. So eventually they applied for court proceedings again where they done their first like really in-depth psychological assessment and it brought up all the trauma and what I went through as a child. The psychiatrist said, I'm in favour of the children remaining with you because social services said that they wanted both my daughters to be removed. And again, the judge was, no, if she needs therapy, she can't help that. And I was meant to go through that, but the money wasn't available. I'd even got my solicitor to ask them if they would lend me the funds and that I would agree to pay it back over a certain amount of time. But they said no, they weren't happy to do that. Then I got pregnant again. With because you'd had relationships with your partner. Yeah, we were on and off, more off, but occasionally I'd let him back in and he had to leave again because of more police incidents and I was drinking alcohol in the evenings when the children were sleeping and then my children were not on time for school. It was little things and little things and little things that added up to big things and they went to court for the third time. Um, sorry. You all right? I just, um, I couldn't prioritise him. Um, and social services just said, it's, you know, you're not doing enough. And I wasn't. You had another psychological assessment at that point, didn't you? Yeah. They initiated court proceedings and that was when the psychiatrist said that she can't favour the children remaining in my care anymore because the level of trauma I'd experienced was never going to go away without therapy. A certain amount, minimum of two years, EMDR. Which is a form of treatment Yeah, for, for people who suffer with post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. It was, like, complex because it was more than one event. It changes the dynamics of it. And she said that I couldn't have the children with me while I carried that therapy out because of how damaging it can be to work through all that. It wouldn't be fair. It can be traumatic. Yeah. Reliving those experiences, reliving trauma. Yeah. So they decided at that point that they needed to not live with me. Did you understand from a perspective of your children needing to be protected yeah how that might be a, a good thing yeah a good way forward yeah the problem comes when you're told you need this treatment mm. and whether or not it's available yeah so what was available not a lot so i went on the nhs waiting list for emdr um they said that i'd get a maximum of six sessions even now the psychiatrist said it was going to be a lot more needed than that, like a lot more. Um, and after the six sessions, you go back on a waiting list and you can be seen by a different person after another year of waiting. So they said there would be no point in accessing that because it can't be done by numerous people over a long 
span of time. So they told you to have this, but basically told you that the treatment you would get wouldn't work. Yeah, basically, unless I went private and could see someone consistent over a longer period. I did start the therapy with the private person they recommended. I was on benefits at the time. I wasn't in any fit state to be working. So I used to get £360 a month and my therapy would cost £360 a month. So for about 18 months, I funded it through benefits, but then got into a lot of debt. I was going to soup run in the evenings. I didn't know how long I could continue to do it, but I knew that every month was a month closer. It's just hard. Thank you so much, Susie, for taking the time to to talk about what you've been through and your hopes for the future. And thank you again to Naga for taking the time to talk to Susie and highlight this really important issue. So now we're talking to Kelly Andrews from the Foundation Service in East Sussex. Thanks so much for joining us, Kelly. You're welcome anytime. So can you tell us a bit more about sort of your role and the service in East Sussex as well? I am a pre-birth practitioner working with families who are pregnant for the Foundation Service, which is part of SWIFT in East Sussex. The Foundation's project works with families who have had one or more children removed from their care. It's a very intense bespoke service to work with those families to help facilitate change, have children in their care in the future or make the decision that children are going to be part of their future. Thank you. And one of the things that we talked about in the past and that we're talking about today is those expert witness assessments that birth parents get during care proceedings and what those recommendations mean and what happens afterwards. What are those main barriers around the expert witness assessment processes during proceedings? I think, I mean, I can only really speak around our service in East Sussex and we are incredibly fortunate that our expert witness assessments are often in-house. So if our expert witness assessments are written by my colleague, one of the first things that I do is arrange a consult with that expert witness and go through the report with them and the recommendations. I use consults all the time in my work. In terms of challenges, where the women are at at the time is often a big challenge or the dads or whoever's being assessed. The trauma of care proceedings in themselves and then on top of that trauma, you're telling your story again to someone that you know is assessing you. So you have this pressure of wanting to be open, wanting to be honest, but being terrified because so much rides on these assessments in that time. In other services, the inflexibility really doesn't help. So you've got to get three buses to an office and it's got to be this time on this day in this place. And we're not really taking into account the trauma, how the anxiety that individual needs of people and how difficult that actually is. You talked a bit about how the work that you do is in-house. What's the positives of that? What impact does that have on the parents that you work with? The fact that you understand the trauma that they're going through, how does that impact on them? Because we're all working from the same page. The person writing the assessment can make recommendations within what we have. So they'll have a person in mind that they'll say, okay, this person does amazing trauma work for this part of your stage in life. This person does amazing parenting. The domestic abuse team can do an amazing piece of work here. So they can make recommendations around what they know 
is there for them and how that can fit into their life in that really bespoke way. I think it's really important to recommend the optimum treatment, even if that's not always accessible, because that way when somebody's doing a piece of research or we're looking at funding, we can say, okay, we think a period of psychotherapy would be great for this person. However, that's not available. So trauma work with somebody within our team might get them to a place where they're ready for psychotherapy. So you can highlight the optimum while saying, let's look at what we've got, whether it's stabilisation work or pre-therapeutic work or just relationship building. Someone to hold them in that space. We can recommend that with the view of longer term options. And it's so great to know that good practice does exist because what you're talking about is the connection between the assessments and the support available. One of the things that our report that we did talks about is that there is such a disconnection that means that people aren't getting the support they need. And I think what we're focused on is not writing an amazing shiny report that shows off how wonderful our skills are at report writing. It's about helping the family. What does this family need and how can my report feed into them accessing what they need? You talked a bit about the optimum treatment is important because we need to know as a society, as a country, what treatments people need. One of the things that we recommend in our report is a bit of a longer term research project to really understand what assessments are being carried out and what are those recommendations that they are saying that people need to access and are they available? Do you think that is needed? Research is always amazing, isn't it? It always helps us to understand things better. It'd be really interesting in terms of research to focus on what we already know, that these relationships that families have with practitioners are incredibly powerful. We all seem to be getting quite positive outcomes, no matter what tools we're using. And I think that's based on modelling positive relationships with professionals so that people can go on and work more effectively with social workers because they have a better experience this time around. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much to Dr Webb, Susie and Kelly for talking to us about their experiences and expertise in this issue. You can read our new report on expert witness assessments, Set Up to Fail, on our website now. We'll be back soon with another podcast episode, but in the meantime, if you want to find out more about PAUSE, just go to pause.org.uk or find us on Twitter or Instagram at PAUSE.org. If you're new to this podcast and enjoyed it, you can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, thank you. Thank you.